Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Cloud, Sustained Fiscal Leadership for Organizational Reform, a case study in three parts that discusses the underfunding of special education in our California schools. My name is Jonathan Wright, and I am a student from Concordia University in Irvine, California. My professor is Dr. Robert Coglin, who is also an assistant superintendent of business services for a school district in Southern California. In this three-part series, I'll be interviewing three groups of people, a representative of a special education department of a large school district in Southern California, part two, two representatives from the same district's business services department, and part three, two representatives from a special education local plan area, SELPA as they are called. In this case study, I'm going to ask these representatives to talk about how the underfunding of the special education affects their department. So, let's get started with part three. Let's meet Susan Bobbitt Roth, an administrator of a SELPA made up of nine school districts in Southern California, and Tim Chatku, a consultant working with Mrs. Bobbitt Roth. Good morning. Uh, my name is Jonathan Wright, and um, I'm joined today with uh, to people from the West End SELPA, and we're gonna talk about the problem of underfunding special ed. How has the problem impacted your organization's budget and your fiscal solvency? It more affects districts because we're, um, we're here to service the district, so our funding is less impacted. Uh, about two-thirds of special ed um, is, I guess, paid for out of the general fund generally speaking, overall for the state. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. 60, 65%, something like that. Okay. Um, so the SELPA mm -hmm. itself, you know, we get a small budget that the districts fund to help us serve them, but we don't have um, students like a district would have, so to speak, so. And maybe okay. just to help you, the state has SELPAs kind of like um, how you have the local control funding formula now and how you have to have a decision-making body. Mm -hmm. The state funnels all special ed money to the SELPA and then the superintendent's council votes how the money is going to be allocated. And before we went on tape, you asked us about adequacy and equity. Um, that's a, a challenge that we have here all the time because we have Chino, so diverse. Chino yeah. with 20 some odd thousand down to Mount Baldy with 100 and you've got to meet the needs of everybody and Chino I have to say has has really always adopted what we believe here in that we're all for all students so they're everybody's students one for all and all for one mm -hmm. so if we have a limited pot of money um, by the numbers yes Chino maybe should get the bulk of it but we've got to give some money to everybody. So it's kind of a, a great way to work out your problems locally because we take every decision to the parent advisory group. Mm -hmm. Then it goes to the special ed directors to talk about programmatically how would all this impact them. Then we take it to the finance committee so we can talk about you know their concerns and their input about it fiscally and then we take everybody's recommendation to the superintendents, they vote. So anything that you would see in our distribution plans isn't because the state sent the SELPA the money and the SELPA decides. We don't have a vote in any meeting we go to. We do what the superintendents vote. Right, so the superintendents okay. council is our governing board, kind of like your board at, at Chino. Okay. They make all the decisions. So, mm -hmm. um, and what further complicates things is of our nine districts, 
we have six elementary only, two unified, and one high school only. So there's a lot of different agendas, I would say, amongst all the districts. And then she mentioned the size difference, too. And so. some are well-funded through local control funding formula, and okay. some aren't, depending on how much they have in the supplemental concentration groups. And something to keep in mind is that every student is a general ed student first. So if you're special ed student, they're they're generating the base funding for LCFF, then they're generating EL, and they're generating poverty and foster if they're in any of those subgroups. And then on top of whatever is the difference, then that needs to be filled by special ed. Well, there's three funding sources for special ed. So there's state, which we just refer to as AB 602, mm-hmm. or Assembly Bill 602, mm-hmm. federal, and the third is local, which is generally uh, contributions from the general fund to make up whatever state and federal funding does not cover for special ed. Out of those three pots, so state is the state is the AB 602 portion that we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And how it works again is CDE, which is the California Department of Education, mm-hmm. they distribute all the state funding to a SELPA. Now you could be a single district SELPA like Contero Montclair, or you could be a nine-district SELPA like the West End SELPA, but they distribute all the funding to the SELPA. Locally, each SELPA has to decide how that money is distributed to the districts. So um, mm-hmm. that's easier for a single district, single district SELPA. So, but we already have our fiscal allocation plan that tells us we get this pot of money that goes this way to all our nine districts. Mm-hmm. If you look at the history, generally special ed is on the increase. Special ed that's students and services provided to those students are on the increase, but the funding is kind of plateaued. So, okay. you know. And I would suggest, you know, if, if you're really going to analyze that, when we say special ed, there are 13 handicapping conditions, and one of them is speech and language. So think about all the kids that go into speech when they're in kindergarten through second grade because they're not saying a sound correctly, like they're not articulating their S or their R correctly, they get some speech therapy and they're out. Okay. They're still in that count of the 12,000, so are they kind of moving in and moving out? Yes, but you've always got somebody to backfill and take their place. Okay. If you have a child who has autism, has is blind, deaf, or has an intellectual disability, they're going to be in special ed. Long term. Yeah. Long term. Okay. Um, I think what we're also seeing a rise in is the number of kids with emotional disturbance. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, with all the things going on in society and everything else. What solutions has your organization implemented to address this problem? Of the lack of funding? Of the lack of funding or underfunding. Um, we don't have too much power. I would say um, she does a lot of, um, I guess, not. You go to the state and you champion the SELPA for more or the special ed for more funding but you know other than that us specifically here we're limited on what we can do at the SELPA level because again we don't have any votes at the table Um, so all we can do is be persuasive and influential yeah so I mean it's it's more of a district level uh, question but but Tim I would say on the other hand we do lots of training trying to help people um, understand where maybe a student could be served in the gen ed environment with some supports as an at-risk student before you move into special ed. Because uh, there's nothing magic about special ed that's going to 
cure you, you know what I mean? You're going to get supports and services. But if, if we can do that differential diagnosis of the student who maybe is not a first language English speaker um, and see if there's other places they can be supported, or can we minimize the cost by um, changing our model to more of a co-teaching model where kids are in the gen ed where they're going to do better because they're going to have access to the core curriculum mm -hmm. instead of putting them in a more restrictive environment where we have to have one teacher and two aides and who knows what else. Um, so um, I think a lot of it is really analyzing the models that we're providing and where can we do some cost cutting. Okay. Uh, one thing we'll probably talk about is other funds that we have here at the SELPA that the superintendents have agreed to, and one of them that's very contentious is the expat. And and so we do fund a lot of due process. Last year, correct me if I'm wrong, Tim, but I think out of that, there was about $12 million of expense, $8 million for non-public schools, $4 million for everything to do with our whole due process department. Okay. So um, we don't want parents to have frivolous lawsuits, and we know that it's very expensive to go to hearing, but we have two grants from the state of California for alternative dispute resolution, and so we are sending directors to training, we're bringing trainers in, we're doing whatever we can to help people learn about the benefits of maintaining that good, effective relationship with the parent, bringing them in and have dispute resolution skills Mm. so that you can resolve it at the lowest level possible so then we don't have to have attorneys, we don't have to go to court, we don't have to have a hearing, all those mm. expenses because there's other consequences where you lose teachers out of the field, you know, how intimidating wow. to have to go to court and that sort of a thing. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really broad where we can save money, just not identifying a kid as a student with IEP, but so many other things or non-public wow. schools, can we offer an alternative mm -hmm. to these very pricey non-public schools where the kids have no access to a general ed setting at all? In what way does the business manager act as a fiscal leader to address the problem? So, so okay. kind of from the West End Celta point of view. Again, we're, we're limited here, but I would say the most we do is we monitor situations and, and perhaps make recommendations on changes, kind of like what Susan said. but. Um, mm -hmm. Again, we we don't uh, directly affect district budgets that way. We okay. really uh, there's a small out of every uh, AB six hundred two funding exhibit. There's a small amount that is earmarked for selpas, mm -hmm. and the rest goes to districts. So um, it's not like we have any control over how much each district gets. Okay. So. You know, I would just say we sometimes we monitor situations for the county, for the districts, for ourselves, and we just you know we might have recommendations. We might say if we create a program, maybe regionalize some type of service that might be more efficient for districts that could save dollars. But you know, uh, the biggest expense at a district is always personnel, so it's hard to cut personnel cost. It's hard to cut costs without cutting teachers, for, for example, because that's the basic, biggest expense. Mm -hmm. We could try to cut back on non-public school placements or something like that, but um, it's hard without a program that's cheaper, mm -hmm. unless you bring the kid back to the general ed environment. So. I think if you were to talk to five selfies, you'd find five different plans. Wouldn't you say, Tim, yeah. multi-district selfies? Okay. A single district selfie, it's easy. 
it's the district and the SAPA are one and the same, so the money just comes in and the business department decides, you know, how they're going to use it. Okay. Um, but when you have multi-district situations, like my yeah. previous SAPA had 10 and my SAPA before that 13, and every single one of them had a totally different setup. But it's how the local decisions are made. I say we were the forerunners of LCFF. You guys have an LCAP now. We've had a local plan forever and a day. And mm -hmm. we've had local decision making since the 90s. And so um, I think we have a number of things that are very unique to us, like an extraordinary cost pool where the excess cost for putting kids in non-public schools or for due process or whatever, districts do get reimbursed a percentage of the cost. So each district contributes money here. That's something we do to try to make it more equitable. I, I don't know that people really see it ending up that way. Um, and there's other pieces too, you know, where we have some grants or whatever, and we have more authority to say how some of those things are going to roll out. Mm -hmm. But again, it's all based on, on need. And so I think everybody determines what their needs are in their own self. So you're not going to see any two of them the same. Interesting. But I will say, I think it's rare that we've seen the superintendents have a split vote, wouldn't you say? It's, there might be one outlier sometimes, but yeah. I would say just about always we've done our homework through that whole process I described. And when the superintendents come to the table and they see the background we've written in the packet and the recommendation, I, it's only a few times they haven't gone with it and even when they didn't go with it again it was pretty unanimous right yeah again <laughs> it's a great group everything yeah. we do here at the SELPA is there's a winner and a loser in everything we do so it's I think that all for one one for all it really applies because take Chino for example um, mm -hmm. because you're so large you ha again, you have your own program specialists and behavior specialists, so you might not use the SELPA's um, program specialist or behavior specialist, but since you are so large, you either use our due process more often because you have just the number of kids, you have more due process. Okay. So you might have more non-public school placements than a smaller district. So you, you might be a, a low user for our and personnel from our program specialists or behavior specialists, but you're a high user on our alternative services like due process, uh, ADR, non-public school placements. So, mm -hmm. and a small district might be the opposite. They might use our personnel more, but they don't have any. They might have one kid at a non-public school, where Chino might have 30. Yeah. So it's, again, one here, it's, it's, it goes hand in hand. And we have the small district protection for Mount yeah. Baldy. They've all agreed that Mount Baldy just wouldn't be able to sustain a big hit, you know, for some of the costs. So among all of our funding, there's a mechanism to protect them so that those They're costs are covered out yeah. of the SAPA. Yeah. I got you. Um, but the one thing we didn't talk about that I think we should just briefly, and that's mm -hmm. maintenance of effort, or MOE, yeah. um, because every time a district incurs a huge expenditure, the next year, they have to show that they've maintained that effort. And so it's very yeah. difficult to ever lower it again, unless there are some exceptions, like if you have a high cost kid in a non-public school, they move away or they graduate, 
then you can take that out because that kid is no longer there. That obligation isn't okay. there. But it's really tough for districts because as the costs go up, even salaries for teachers are going up. Right. They have to keep that same amount to show on their report for maintenance of effort. Even for like one-time dings, like a lawsuit, if it goes up, do they have to maintain? Um, yeah, so there are, she mentioned there yeah, are exceptions. Five exceptions. Yeah. Okay. So, so right. if yeah, okay. if you have a huge one-time expense, then and it falls under the guidelines, you can reduce it. But generally speaking, um, and this is for uh, state and local expenses, it's kind of because uh, they want to make sure it goes to back to supplement versus supplant. They want to make sure you're not using your federal dollars to replace something. So they want to say, you need to be, you need to spend the same amount of state and local funding that you were spending in prior years, either in total or by average per student. So if your special ed count dropped by a thousand kids and your total is lower, that's fine because by average per student, you, you maintain the same level of effort. Okay. But what they want to say is, we're going to give you federal dollars, but we want to make sure that you're not using those federal dollars to, to replace funding that you had spent for state and local funding that you had spent on special ed because that would be not the purpose of the federal dollars. The federal dollars are for anything above and beyond that. They're, so okay. So that's, that's, that's the whole uh, maintenance of effort. They want to say you're still maintaining the state and local dollars, the effort that you paid for these special ed students, and then these federal dollars are for other things, like I got on top of those other, other services, I guess. So I see. So the CD is actually having us pass some tests every year that are actually driven by the federal government. So we have to verify that we are using our special ed dollars as it's intended and we're continuing to provide for our students. And the other test is, and tell me if I'm not explaining it correctly, Tim, the excess costs we have to show because they are gen ed student first, mm -hmm. that we've covered the amount with gen ed that they would generate and then the excess cost for special ed is where we're spending the special ed dollars. I got you. I would like to thank Susan Bobbitt Voth and Tim Chatku for taking time out of their busy schedule. In addition, I would like to thank Dr. Rob Coglin for allowing me this opportunity. And finally, I thank Concordia University in Irvine, California for spreading God's good word and believing in me, making my dreams a reality. I leave you with this. Remember to always cultivate collaborative systems. God bless and Godspeed.